Well, as Nate said, uh, I'm Lee Ledbetter. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I have been campus minister, as he mentioned, for about 10 years with RUF International at the University of Tennessee, uh, not too far uh, to the east from here. I think it's east from here. Um, this is my first time here, and what a privilege to worship with you and bring God's word uh, to you this morning. Before I do, I just want to take a few minutes and share about uh, RUFI. Uh, I'm sure uh, maybe before the, this morning, you never heard of RUF International, even though it's been around for probably 30 years. I like to think it's the best kept secret in our denomination. Um, <clears throat> I am, uh, wouldn't be who I am today and where I am today, obviously without the grace of God, but also without my wife, Jennifer will be here in uh, the 11 o'clock service. I've got four kids. Daniel is 18. Philip is 15. Uh, we've got two adopted girls from Haiti. Uh, Annie is 10, and Nisa is 8. So our life is full. Don't sleep a whole lot, but it's good. Um, but we are really privileged to be engaging in ministry with people from around the world who come to the University of Tennessee to get advanced degrees and undergraduate degrees, also to continue their research uh, at the highest level. Um, there are, this may surprise you, 1.2 million international students and scholars currently in the United States. 1,700 of those are at the University of Tennessee from, a, from about 100 different nations. And so that number over 10 years as I've been campus minister, the number in the U.S. has basically doubled. And we're continuing to see... Uh, Nations from around the world sending their best and brightest to our colleges and university campuses. And so it really is a, I mean, every ministry claims to be strategic, and it is. They are, in, in a sense, of course. But it really is a strategic opportunity. Uh, the vast majority of the students, I mean, this is not official, but I'd like to say probably 97 to 98% of the internationals that we encounter not only are not believers, They've never done what we're doing this morning. They've never been to church. They don't have Christian friends. They've never opened the Bible. And so what a privilege it is to hold out Christ to them in the context of relationship and love them and welcome them. In RUF International, uh, we try to do three simple things. We try to welcome them with the hospitality that Christ has shown us. Uh, we look for opportunities to explore the gospel with these students, um, to investigate Christianity with them. Uh, but then also, for those who come to faith, or for the few that come here uh, as believers already, we look to equip them uh, for works of service in Christ's kingdom. There are hundreds of stories um, that I'd love to share. Uh, I'm going to tell you one real quickly. I met with Rita. Rita is a really sweet, bright uh, girl from China. We met on Friday at a coffee shop on campus. Rita's been around for a couple of years, has been involved in our ministry doing different things. Rita's not a believer. Uh, Rita loves to take pictures, and actually while I was waiting for my coffee, I saw her taking pictures of tables and chairs, and I have no artistic bone in my body, so I was a little bit confused. And uh, she, I asked her about it, and she went on to say, I just love taking pictures. Uh, she takes pictures all the time, every day. She said the world kind of comes alive for her when she takes, when she takes pictures. And uh, as I, honestly, as I, I drove in the, the parking lot to park before we met, I do what I always do, and that's just to say, God, I have no idea what to talk about today with Rita. It was our first real conversation, despite her coming to many events. It's just amazing how God shows up when you have no resources, and yet you cast yourself on him. I don't know how we got into the conversation, but somehow the idea of gift giving in Chinese culture came up. Uh, maybe it's because I, I may have shared that I received three gifts at our welcome party a week ago from last night at the home of my parents. Our Chinese friends are always bringing uh, gifts very graciously. But as we talked about gift giving, and I've had this conversation a lot with Chinese friends, it's interesting. There's, a, there's an element um, where they really want to honor you. But there's also an element in their gift giving where they do it because um, they may need a favor from you in the future, and, or you may have done them a favor. And there's this sense of cultural obligation that they feel, and it's very, very strong. 
And so I got to sort of contrast that with how I see giving, not so much like, hey, American culture, look at us, the way we do it as, you know, everything we do is right. Of course not. But really tried to draw out a contrast for giving in the gospel and what is grace all about. And grace is giving with no strings attached to people who don't deserve it and people who can't repay you in any way. And was able to unpack the message of Christianity for her and point her to places in the Bible. And uh, it's interesting. She said uh, towards the end, she said, you know, I send all these pictures to my mom. And my mom's always asking, why do these people, why does, you know, she didn't know what RUF International is, but why do these people give you free food? You know, what is it they're wanting to get from you? It's, it's literally a foreign concept that you would give and expect nothing in return. And after... Yeah, after I shared uh, the message of grace with Rita, it's kind of, she was so focused, and it's like a light came on, and she said, I get it now. I get why you guys do it. If God has really loved you in this way, then I get why you would want to share that with other people. That's what RUF International is about, and uh, we have just the supreme privilege of loving internationals and, and holding out the grace, the free grace of Christ to them. If, uh, if I was a cat with nine lives, uh, transitioning to the sermon now, um, I think in one of those lives I would have been a Navy SEAL. Uh, this is apparently not the life I'm going to be a, a Navy SEAL, and not only because I love my job or am too old, but I uh, actually never had a chance to be a frogman, as they're fondly referred to. You know, those guys can swim for miles at a time. They can hold their breath for minutes underwater. So when the Navy recruiter called me my senior year of high school, um, his first question was, uh, do you have asthma? Can you breathe well? And I had to be honest with him and said, uh, no, sir, I cannot breathe well. And yes, I do have severe exercise-induced asthma. And, uh, you know, if you watch me exercise, which I do, um, you would think I was on the verge of death. I look terrible when I exercise. And I can't, really, I can't go down and back in a pool without stopping to gasp for air. So I really never had a chance to be a Navy SEAL. Never had a chance to rescue Captain Phillips or capture Bin Laden with SEAL Team 6. Never had a chance to go through Hell Week. It's a real disappointment for me. Uh, If you know what Hell Week is, it's the fourth week uh, of Navy SEAL training where they try to weed out would-be SEALs, people like me who think that they could have made it. It was five and a half days of Hell Week with only a total of four hours of sleep, miles of beach running in combat boots. These guys are carrying a boat above their heads with their teammates the entire week. Two-mile swims in the frigid waters, more push-ups and sit-ups than you can count or would want to do, lying on their backs in the sand as the waters of the Pacific, the cold waters, crash over their heads. They're constantly hungry, wet, and tired, and then they've got the instructors yelling at them, insulting them, begging them to give up, telling them about the hotel room just down the street waiting for them. And in fact, 70% of recruits do give up. They bail for the hotel room. Why would the instructors try to talk them out of it? Well, it's because they're trying to weed out folks who really have no place being a SEAL, but they're also, positively, they're trying to build a team, right? They're trying to find men who are physically fit, mentally tough, and highly skilled in warfare and survival techniques. But they want to find men who will embrace their role on a team because these guys will be sent out on crucial missions around the world. And being a SEAL, from what I understand, is not just a job. It's not their day job. It is who they are. It's what they live for. And if they're going to to survive and perform the rescue and attack operations that they are sent on, they have got to fully buy into the mission that they're given. May not be any Navy SEALs among us here this morning, but for us who are Christians, we are called, we have been called to be on the highest mission there is. The Bible tells us that God sent Jesus into the world to rescue sinners, and we know that he's called us together right? To be on his team, his chosen ones, his called out ones, to take the word of life and to make disciples of the nations in our hometown, 
on our university campuses, and in some ways to every corner of the globe. But if you're like me, we struggle with this mission. We often don't engage people near us and around the world very well, and it's because we struggle with sharing our faith. We're not always convinced of this mission we're on. We struggle with evangelism and with missions. At times we feel guilty. At other times we rationalize, right? We say things like, I'm just, I'm just really busy, or I don't have extra money to give, uh, or I don't know what to say, or even for us who are Reformed, right? God's sovereign. So maybe it's not that important that I talk about Christ. Well, finally, we tell ourselves and we tell God that we're going to try harder. We're going to be more involved. We're going to work up the courage to invite our neighbor or friend to church. We're going to pray for missionaries every day. But if we're honest, we often fail and we find ourselves right back where we started. And it's because the problem goes deeper. It's not that you and I have a shortage of willpower. It's that we are nearsighted. We have a shortage of vision. We have a lack of faith. We are not always sure about this mission that God has called us to. But if the world is going to know God, then we have got to buy into his mission. Well, in the middle of the book of Acts, we find Paul on a mission. It's actually his second of his three missionary journeys. And when the, guy, it's, the second journey is when the gospel was planted on European soil. And as we know, it spread to Africa, spread to Asia, to North America, to Latin America, and to Oceania and beyond. And it's interesting, though, um, Paul finds himself, and we find him in Acts 17, in a place that he didn't expect to be in, and it's a place that he did not want to be in. He's in Athens, Greece. And uh, you may remember Athens was the brightest star of the Greek empire for five centuries before Paul's day. It was the capital of the Western world, right? It was the epicenter for intellectual and cultural life. Athens had given birth to the great philosophers like Socrates, if he existed, at least Plato and Aristotle. It was really the engine behind the ideals of freedom and democracy. And it was still, in Paul's day, one of the three major cities of the Roman Empire. So why would Paul not want to be there? And why would he have been put there against his will? Well, Paul had been in Macedonia. He had been doing what God had called him to do, ministering to people. But he ran into trouble when certain groups began to oppose his preaching, his preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, his preaching about Jesus being Lord instead of Caesar. And so he was thrown in jail and he was beaten. And the believers in Berea were so concerned about his physical safety that they actually forced him to flee to Athens without Timothy and Silas. And so it looked like Paul's mission had been put on hold. But even though it wasn't Paul's plan or Paul's desire to be in Athens, he was not in Athens by mistake. God had put him there. And sometimes God puts you and he puts me in situations that we would rather not be in. And he brings people, he brings people into our lives that can make being a witness for Jesus confusing and at times just plain hard. And that is not an accident. But God has also given us a passage like Acts 17 to help us, to help us learn how we can be empowered to engage in his mission wherever we are. So let's read. We're going to read the second half of Acts chapter 16, sorry, chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. This is Acts 17, beginning with verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you, are, that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we are privileged to come to you this morning and worship, and we pray now that you would open your word and reveal to us marvelous things. Father, would you make us hungry? Would you make our hearts soft uh, to receive the message that you have for us this morning? Thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but you have broken into the world. You have entered into history, and by your Spirit, you have caused the light of the gospel to shine in our hearts. Would that light get brighter this morning through the preaching of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so what can we learn about Paul's experience in Athens uh, from his unplanned, unexpected stint in this great city? What is it that we can glean about the mission the Lord has called us to be part of, this mission of making disciples of the nations, of engaging those outside of Christ, whether that's on the other side of the world or on our university campuses, in our communities, or maybe even in our own families. And I believe this morning that there are at least three things in our text that we need to become more persuaded of if we're going to fully buy into this mission. Three things that we're not always as convinced of as we need to be. And the first is the lostness of man. The lostness of man. What does Paul find when he arrives in Athens? Well, he finds a city full of people who think they have life figured out. But the truth is they don't know how much they don't know. And we see in this text that lostness can take a couple of different forms. At least it does for the Athenians. We see how lostness can take the form of religion. Paul found Jews and he found God-fearing Greeks in Athens. These are people who didn't know about Jesus. And as verse 17 says, he reasoned with them in the synagogues, just like he had done in many places before. And he tried to prove from the scriptures as he was reasoning with them, tried to prove that Jesus was the Christ. He did that because he knows they need to hear about Jesus since salvation is found in no other name. We also learn that the city... Paul finds that the city is full of idols, or as one commentator said, it's smothered in idols. You know, Athens had more shrines and more altars and more statues than pretty much anyone could count. Statues and altars to Jupiter and Venus and Mercury and many others. 
One ancient Roman writer actually said it was easier to find a God in Athens than a man. You may have heard that before. And these gods were beautiful. Gods of gold and silver and ivory and marble made by the finest sculptors around. They would have been very attractive. So these people of Athens were very religious, so religious, as we read in verse 23, that they even had an altar to a God they didn't know, just to cover their bases, to make sure that they didn't tick off some deity by forgetting to to worship him or bring him sacrifices. But for all their religion, the people of Athens were lost. They were spiritually clueless about who the true God was and how it was that they were to relate to him. Those gods were really just superhumans, right, with virtues but also vices. They were unjust and unmerciful. They were unpredictable and they were demanding. And the people served these gods out of fear and out of manipulation and order, hopefully for those gods to make their life work well. They were lost in their religion. We also see that they were lost in their philosophy. We find Paul not just reasoning in the synagogues, but mingling in the marketplace, in the agora. That's the Greek. And so what was the agora? It was the, it was the center of city and cultural life in Athens. It's where people went to buy food and clothing. It's where they banked. It is where they met friends to eat and to talk with. They didn't eat their friends. They ate food and they talked with their friends. But it's really, it's the place where everything happened. That was the agora. And verse 17 and 18 tell us that he reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And apparently there were heated exchanges with groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And in case you've forgotten your philosophy 101, a quick snapshot. The Epicureans, right, these were people who believed that God was too distant, too too detached to actually be involved in human affairs. They believed the world was controlled by chance and by accidents, And since there was nothing that actually took place after death, this life is the only go-round. Since nothing happens after death, the best that we can do is to try to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. That was the Epicurean Epicurean philosophy of life. And the Stoics, they thought everything was governed by fate. And since you can't change your fate, your life is pre-programmed, and so is mine. Since you can't change it, really the best that you can do if you're a Stoic is to embrace life however you find it, whatever your circumstances are, to stare it in the face and to deal with it. People today are just as religious. They're just as philosophical as the people in Athens in Paul's day. And they're just as lost, even if they don't know it, and even if they don't look like it to us. You don't have to go to a temple You don't have to go to a mosque. You don't have to go to church to be religious, right? We're worshipers by nature. It is who we are and it is what we do. We are always hoping in something. We are always chasing after happiness in a place or a person or an achievement or an experience. A couple of years ago at the University of Tennessee, I met a guy that I'll call Matthew. He is from Iraq. He's a graduate student. Uh, very, very bright guy. He came to, I believe it was our end-of-the-year party uh, two years ago. And uh, I followed up with Matthew and had lunch with him and um, began to get to know him. And we've actually become really good friends now. I learned a lot about his life. He is from the capital city of Iraq. He's from Baghdad. He told me that he had been forced to flee from his home over 40 times One day, uh, he came home, and there was a note on his door that he knew had been put there by an Iranian-backed militia, and the note said, join us or die. It wasn't much longer after that that his home was attacked and his brother was shot, and he told me one day about that incident where he found his brother, and he picks his brother up, and just frantically, not knowing what to do, starts running through the streets with his brother. And it was the U.S. soldier who saw him and actually saved his brother's life. Matthew had had to work hard as a young man. His dad died when he was young. He worked hard. He did get the opportunity to study and made the most of it. He actually graduated from the university 
as the top engineering student in the country of Iraq, so prestigious that the minister of education invited Matthew to personally join him on the Hajj, the journey to Mecca. Matthew's brilliant. He's enamored with science. He loves science. He's a good man, and he does believe in some kind of God, but he tells me that he has thrown out religion. He's tired of seeing Sunni and Shia kill each other. So he's not interested in religion. He's, he's open to a God who's kind, one who's tolerant, and one who has very low expectations. But the main thing, if I'm honest, the main thing that Matthew cares about right now, it's his career. It's his future. He invests hours and hours every day and every week doing his research, writing papers, doing projects. Oak Ridge has already started tapping into his potential. And he and I have had so many great conversations about life and about faith and about God. But Matthew is lost. Matthew is in need of the liberating gospel because the God that he used to serve, the God of Islam, was not a safe and secure place for him to put his hope, but neither are the gods of success and comfort that he's serving right now. And as Christians, you and I have got to be convinced that people like Matthew, good people like Matthew, are lost and they're in need of Christ's redeeming mercy. But God calls us to more than just recognizing that. He calls us to have compassion when we engage our family or friends or strangers who don't know the true and the living God. Their lostness should not just come to our attention. It ought to move us in our hearts. You know, Paul wasn't blind to the polytheism. Paul wasn't blind to the sophisticated philosophies in Athens, but neither was he detached. In verse verse 16, we read that his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was provoked within him. And this actually comes from from a word, uh, the Greek word, paroxysmos. And this is a medical term that was used to describe things like seizures. And we find the word most of the time in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's used to describe the jealous love that God has for his people as they start to stray away and wander after other gods, after idols, after substitutes. And so we see that Paul wasn't indifferent. Paul was grieved by what he saw, how the religion and philosophies had captivated the people of Athens, but was enslaving them and leaving them empty. But he was also stirred. He was stirred to a holy jealousy as God's honor was being defamed around the city. So how do we see people outside of Christ? If you're here this morning, how do you think about those people that you know or suspect are separated from the living God? Do you see them? Do I see them as truly lost and without hope except for the grace of God? And if not, why don't we see them like that? Do we spend time really trying to understand what other people are worshiping, what they're chasing after, what they're running to or running from? Do we spend time thinking prayerfully about how to engage them, asking God, for open doors and for wisdom? And do we feel anything when we see the people around us in darkness? Are our spirits provoked like Paul's was? To see the world around us groping about in spiritual darkness, whether that's people here in Franklin or the greater Nashville area, or people in D.C. or New York, or people in Beijing or Baghdad, like my friend is from, or folks in Manila or Mumbai, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in Jesus. And I think Tim Keller wisely points out, as he often does wisely point things out, that we have to be careful here, right? On the one hand, if we're only disgusted and outraged by the sin and the emptiness that we see in the lives of people, those folks are probably not going to be drawn to want to listen to our message of love and hope. But on the other hand, if we are only filled with compassion and there's no sense of moral indignation, then we're probably not going to have the boldness that we need and that we're called to to speak the truth 
to speak it in love, but to speak it boldly. We need both of those. We've been talking about the lostness of man and how it takes different forms and how it calls for a response on our part. And that's my first point. And I promise it's the longest point. Um, But it's the first reason, I think, that we don't fully engage. We don't fully buy into this mission of making disciples that God has called us to. It's because we're not always really convinced that people are that desperate, that they're really in darkness and need to be delivered. But the second thing that we need to be more gripped by is the greatness of God. And how do we see that greatness in Acts chapter 17? Well, I think we see it in a couple of ways. We see it We see the greatness of God in the sense that God is the almighty creator. In verse 23, Paul tells the people, you know that altar over there, uh, the one that says to an unknown God, to a God that you don't know? Well, I'm here to tell you who that God is. I'm here to tell you what he's like. He's not made by a craftsman out of some material. He's not confined to some certain region. He's not a tribal deity. And he's not arbitrary, he's not unpredictable, and he's not selfish and always fighting to be king of the mountain like these false gods and hopes that you have been trusting in. No. As verse 24 and 25 tell us, he is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The true God is the great creator. We also see his greatness in this. And that's, he is the servant of all who hope in him. He's the servant of all who hope in him. You know, most of us love to be served. I guess we all love to be served. Um, One of my favorite images of loving to be served is my 15-year-old, Philip who's back in Knoxville this weekend. For several years, he's kind of gotten out of the habit, I'm grateful for, but for several years, he had this ritual of walking through the kitchen at night on his way upstairs to his bedroom. And once he was comfortably uh, in his bed, um, under the blankets, he would call out, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, can you give me some water Uh, filtered uh, with ice? So he just walked through the kitchen, past the sink, past the filtered water in the refrigerator, and conveniently waits every night until he gets upstairs and then calls out for me to do it. He loves to be served in that way. And I've probably spoiled him too often. Uh, Or my wife, right, as a mother of four, more than once she has said, you know, I just would love a day off. I'd love to get sick so that someone could serve me. You moms can definitely appreciate that. It's interesting. Uh, We love to be served, but this subtle shift seems to take place as we grow in the Christian life, ironically, or as we journey with Christ. Um, We quit talking about being served, and we start talking about serving, serving God and serving others. And we see serving as a mark of our spiritual maturity. And if you think about it, right, there's good biblical precedent for this. Uh, I mean, remember Joshua's words to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But what about Paul? Doesn't Paul himself, doesn't he use the word servant? He describes himself as a servant of Christ and a servant of the gospel. But is it possible that trying to serve God at times or in certain ways might actually be an insult to him. I want you to listen to a few verses of Scripture that I think pick this theme up. And the first is in our text. It's verse 25. It says, He is not served. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God doesn't need anything that you or I have He is the one who creates and sustains the world. He's the one who directs history. He is the one who redeems and restores. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Isaiah 64, 4 says that since ancient times, no one has heard 
No ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Who is it? Whom is it that God acts on behalf of? Whom is it that he serves? It is those who wait for him. It is those who hope in him. It is those who look to him to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And so if we're attempting to serve the Lord in a way uh, to try to manipulate or to coerce him, or if we're serving him because we think and somehow he needs us, that's when serving becomes bad. And that could be a Hindu walking into a temple offering up a plate of vegetables to a deity at a shrine, or it could be you or me sitting on our front porch having our quiet time if we think that by doing so, we're putting ourselves in, in or putting God in our debt or somehow able to manipulate him to, to give us what we want. He doesn't need us. Why is it that our master insists on serving It's not just a suggestion. It's something he insists on. It's his way. And I love what John Piper says. He says that he insists on serving because the very heart of God's glory is the fullness of his grace that overflows in kindness to needy people. Let me say that again. Because the very heart of God's glory is the fullness of his grace that overflows in kindness to needy people. And what this means is that if we try to serve God by working to appease him or give something that we think he needs to keep him happy, we are actually stripping him of glory. We are dishonoring him and not honoring him. But we promote his glory, right, when we see our need, when you see your need, and we cry out to him to serve us with his infinite store of mercy. This is what honors the greatness of God. Again, I love what Piper says. He says the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you unless you're healthy, and Jesus won't enlist you unless you are sick. Patients don't serve their physicians. I love that quote. I've got a good Indian friend. um, Let's call her Melissa. She's about four foot ten. I uh, got a braided ponytail almost as long as she is tall. Uh, she is really a stick of dynamite. Incredibly bright. She got her PhD, finished a couple of years ago. She got her PhD in animal science in three years. Really, really difficult to do. Uh, Melissa was always smiling and full of energy. Uh, one time she actually walked an hour to my house uh, just for an event. She's got a car. She's got a bike. There are buses. She wanted to walk just to do it. Melissa was also not afraid to express her opinions, usually respectfully, but definitely vocal about what she believed. And so we met regularly, but this one day we met on campus in the student cafeteria, and we were discussing the possibility of knowing God, and here's what she said to me. She said, all gods and religions are simply different faces of the one being that underlies everything. You can imagine God however you want to fit your needs and desires, And there's actually no limit to the number of gods and what they're like. So the more, the better. And it was interesting. We actually talked about this passage, Acts 17, and Paul's bold words, words to the people of Athens, how he describes them as ignorant, how he says that their gods were not real, that there was only one Lord and that he commands all people everywhere to repent and put their trust in Jesus alone. And as we talked about this, I noticed that Melissa became aggravated. She became irritated with me because I was making this claim that truth had one face, and it was the truth that God had revealed in the person of Jesus and in the scriptures. Melissa talked a lot about tolerance, a lot about not judging, but on that day, when I was making the claims that Scripture claims she was really not happy with me and not happy with the gospel. And so what was her problem? What was Melissa's problem with the gospel? Her problem was that she could not fathom a God who had the right to do whatever he pleased. And she couldn't swallow the idea that she was actually in need 
somehow in need of this God to serve her. She had confessed to me on another uh, occasion that she, that she thought she had never done anything morally wrong, nothing really wrong in her life. And Melissa couldn't find any beauty in a God who gets all the glory by pouring out his kindness and power to rescue needy sinners like her and me. She did not think God was great. So think about your own life. Do we think God is great? Of course, we'd say yes. It's in our liturgy. It's in our prayers. It's in our minds. But do we functionally live as if he really is great? You see, if we're not convinced of his greatness, especially the greatness of his grace, then we will not be motivated to be on this mission he's called us to. We won't be motivated to share Christ with others. We might share out of a sense of duty, but we won't do it because our hearts have been captivated by his love and his grace. But when we see and experience the love of God, this God who loves to serve by giving to those who hope in him, we will naturally be pushed out. We will want to go out and engage others. We won't have to be told. We won't have to be coerced. We'll buy into his mission because we have become convinced of his greatness. Well, if we're going to buy into this mission to make disciples of the nations, we've got to be convinced that people are lost. We've got to be convinced that God is great. And the final thing that we've got to be sure of is that there is power in the gospel. And I think one of the biggest reasons that we don't evangelize more, that we don't pray more for the lost or, frankly, for our own lives, the reason we don't give more sacrificially to support the work of the gospel is that we don't really believe often that anything will happen. We don't believe that people can actually change. And many people, I think if we're honest about our experience, many people don't seem to be responsive to the gospel. You can think of family members or neighbors or coworkers, people that you work out with or maybe serve on a board or committee with. Think of people from other cultures, other religions, whether they're on that side of the world or whether they're here as international students or immigrants of some sort. They often don't seem interested or seem to need the gospel, or maybe they've heard it and it didn't make a difference. It didn't make an impact in their life. But what happened when Paul preached the gospel in Athens? How did the people respond? Verse 32 tells us that some mocked Paul. They sneered at him. They accused him of promoting foreign gods, right? So they took him to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill, which at that time, as you probably know, especially, I'm assuming if you went on the trip to Athens, you know more than I do. But at that time, it was no longer a judicial court, but it was really a council that functioned as a kind of guardian of education and culture and morality. And there's not really a modern equivalent, but as a number of scholars have pointed out, our university is really the closest thing that we have to the Areopagus. It is where people... The intellectual elite, right, form their theories of politics and philosophy and ethics. And I want you to listen. Not everybody at the universities believe or talk like this, but I want you to listen to one of the culture brokers of our day, uh, a guy who died a couple of years ago, Christopher Hitchens. You may be familiar with his name. Hitchens was a British atheist and author of a book entitled God is Not Great, And here's what Hitchens says. It would be terrible. It would be horrible if it were true that we were designed and then created and then continuously supervised throughout all our lives and then continued to be supervised after our deaths. It would be like living in North Korea. You can't defect from North Korea, but at least you can die. With monotheism, and he means Christianity, With monotheism, they won't even let you die and get away from them. Who wants that to be true? As we go about following Jesus and living our lives as Christians, scattering the seed of the gospel, we are going to encounter mixed responses from people. There will be some like Hitchens who sneer and who scoff, and there will be others who politely listen and nothing seems to happen in their life. But you and I never know 
when the Spirit of God will make the lights come on in a person's heart. And for them, as 1 Corinthians 1 so boldly affirms, Christ will become the power and the wisdom of God unto salvation. In verses 32 and 33, we read, But others said, We want to hear you again. And a few became followers of Paul, and they believed. Several years ago, we hosted a dinner on campus. Um, We invited Korean students to come and to hear a Korean doctor who lives in the Chattanooga area. This is a guy who became a believer as an adult. He is a pulmonologist, very successful doctor. Uh, Gil Jong is his name, and Gil's become a good friend of mine. And he's got an amazing story that he told that night about his long journey out of Buddhism and into the arms of Christ. 35 years ago, he was a new doctor in the Chattanooga area, and he asked people, hey, where should I send my kids to school? Where's the best education? And everybody said, look out mountain. And so he said, okay, great, I'll move to the mountain. And they said, uh, you probably don't want to move to the mountain. Uh, there are no foreigners on Lookout Mountain. And Gil said, um, oh, I'm moving to the mountain then. Uh, and he was the first, by his account, the first foreigner to move on Lookout Mountain. And folks said, um, well, you know what? There's another reason you probably don't want to move up on Lookout Mountain. You're a Buddhist, and everybody there is Christian. And he said, oh, I'm definitely moving to Lookout Mountain. I'll convert the mountain for Buddha and for Buddhism. And so he moved to the mountain. He entered into a medical practice, formed a partnership, business partnership with another doctor. That doctor happened to be a member of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. His partner loved Gil. He shared his life with Gil. He shared Christ with Gil, and he prayed faithfully for Gil. He invited Gil and his family to join his family on vacation for 24 years. And every year, they would stay up late. They'd have these conversations. They were going through, I guess it took them 24 years to get through the book by R.C. Sproul. I don't even know what the title is, but some, some sort of book that talked about questions about life and reality and scripture and the God who may or may not exist. But after 24 years, God gave Gil a new and saving faith and transformed his entire life. He was no longer serving money or status or achievement, but was serving Jesus, serving Jesus in response to how he began to understand Jesus had served and was continuing to serve him in love. And his faith changed him as a doctor. He talked about how going to work now, he actually was able to minister to souls and treat souls and not simply treat bodies. He actually had hope to share with his patients. He's now an elder at Lookout Mountain Press, serving the church, engaging the community, and engaging his patients. How long had Gil been a Buddhist? About 50 years. How long did his partner share Christ with him and love him and invest in him? 24 years. It's amazing. This guy lived out his faith, normal guy just like you and me, He cared for him. He cared enough to become friends with a guy who was a stranger, even invite him on vacation. And he shared the good news for him, and he waited and he prayed. And the Spirit empowered and used this ordinary man to change Gil's life forever. And now, as a result, other lives, many lives are being impacted by Gil's ministry. So I want you to think as we close here about someone or maybe a handful of people in your life that God has put there And this person or these people really need the grace of God. They need the redeeming gospel revealed in the scriptures. Today would be a great day to start or to restart praying for open doors, praying for divine appointments, to love them, to welcome them, and to share Christ with them. Your testimony doesn't have to be dazzling. Your theology definitely doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to know the answer to every question. Who does, right? But with willing faith in the Spirit's power, there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome. So are there people that you have given up on, those who have been too sophisticated, too bitter, or maybe too afraid to become followers of Jesus? Don't you see that God is in the business of bringing dead people to life 
There is no one beyond his desire and no one beyond his reach. So if you slipped into thinking that nobody can change or this particular person can't change or things can't change, I hope you will be encouraged today. Jesus is interested. He is able to change circumstances. He's able to change the people that he sent you to minister to. But he's also interested in changing us in the process as we pray, as we work, and as we long for more of his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. You and I can buy into his mission completely. It's a mission that's not finished yet. God is still at work, but he is committed to accomplishing his glorious purposes of redeeming his people and of building his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word in Acts 17. Thank you for how relevant it is to us today, a couple thousand years later, when so much of the time the people maybe that we see on TV, the people that we work next to, the people that we encounter as we go about our lives, they're really just interested in talking about the latest fads, the latest ideas flitting from one hope to another. And Lord, you've given us your word, and your word is the glasses, the lens uh, through which we can see that they're lost and they are in need of rescue. Lord, I pray today that you would provoke our spirits. Would you move us to care, to be filled with compassion, just as Jesus was filled with compassion over the people of Jerusalem and wanted to gather them together under his wings. Would you give us opportunities, even this week, and would we pray for crazy things? Would we pray for people maybe who have been Buddhist or atheist for 50 years, people who have rejected the gospel and by human means would never, ever come to faith. There is no one beyond your reach. Would you renew our confidence in the gospel and send us back out with renewed assurance that this mission is your mission. You will accomplish it, and you're using us in the process. We pray this in your name. Amen.